Welcome to We Think, We Talk, sponsored by Select Care Pharmacy, a pharmacy that is non-retail, but that services the smallest of group homes to the largest of skilled nursing facilities with prompt attention and care and world-class customer service. All right, welcome back to another episode of We Think, We Talk. I'm your host, Andy Garrison, always sponsored by Select Care Pharmacy, a premier non-retail pharmacy serving the smallest to the largest skilled and assisted living facilities with world-class customer service and training. Today, we have a special guest. We have Dr. Roland White with us. It's good to see you. Good to see you, too. And I do appreciate you coming. Enjoy. Uh, his schedule is super, super tight, and he's in, in, uh, he does a lot of everything, so it's really hard to get a hold of him, but he was willing to come and talk with us today. So I know this fits right in with uh, all the other shows, so it works good. But uh, I do know a lot about you. We've been friends for several years. Um, but why don't you tell the guests a little bit about yourself, uh, how you became a doctor and kind of how it all started and, and, and what you've done. Uh, I'm a physician here in the upstate of uh, Greenville. Um, I went to Wake Forest undergrad and then the Medical University of South Carolina for medical school. Uh, and I ended up um, in the primary care field in uh, the hospice and geriatric care space. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, I am the medical director for Patriot Hospice. Um, okay. uh, here, we service the whole state, but headquartered in Easley. And uh, we've won the best of the upstate for past two or three years running. So uh, we've got a great staff over there. And I also have a primary care facility where I do um, primary care and some um, pain management and addiction treatment uh, in Greer. That's awesome. Congratulations on the best of the best. That's hard to get. Thank you. That is hard to get. Um, of course, you know, you think I, I know I think you're the best of the best. Um, I tell this little story before we get into anything. Um, he's not only my friend, I actually saw, uh, Dr. White personally, I had a back injury and, uh, you know, uh, went to him for pain, but I'm not a narcotic guy. For some reason, it just creates a brick in my stomach, you know. And and he said, we have things for that. But he actually showed me a way to get through without uh, narcotics and dealt with my pain. And um, I guess it's a good thing I'm not your patient anymore that I have <laughs> to come. I mean, it sounds horrible, but true. But 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 it was able to be treated without uh, having to get, you know, on a on a large amount of medications we just got the right cocktail of anti-inflammatories and NSAIDs and other things like that and and uh it's helped tremendously so it still helps to this day so you know that is working uh yeah yeah it 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 was amazing to me because i tell you when you're in pain um you're desperate you will you will almost do anything um but the reason i wanted to have you on today is we've been through many episodes and talked about many things um, but we really talk about everything healthcare. Okay. Um, and then sometimes we even go off that subject. But you've been a physician in the upstate for a while. And um, for those that don't know, he just recently got married. So congratulations on Thank that, you. too. Thank you. Um, I'm going to call him now monthly and check that out because I know his life's going to change because uh, that's interesting. I believe your wife's a, a, a pedi- pediatrician. A pediatrician. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, that's you, you at least will have something to talk about when you get home. Uh, that you can relate to. Same way with me. I, I married a nurse. So uh, the conversation was always, you know, similar. At right. least we had. But um, obviously, the last couple of years have affected everybody. And I'm sure it's affected uh, the hospice business and your private business. Um, and I know that he also does uh, some a la carte. 
for for patients. I've had several patients in in my career that that needed their, they wanted a special physician, not just a house physician. And I've made um, a special call to to Doctor White, and he was always there to help um, with those situations. But what do you see that has really in the last say two years? What changes have you seen that that's really affected uh, our industry? Uh, the biggest thing that I've seen um, ever since COVID started, which I guess was about two years ago, yeah, end of 2019 is when everything started happening, um, is that there was a shift to telemedicine mm-hmm. um, for visits because people didn't want to be around people that were sick in the practices, and physicians didn't want necessarily sick people in their waiting rooms. Um, because at the True. beginning, we didn't know all of the symptoms that you might come in with. We didn't know who was sick, who wasn't. And you didn't want to get sick. And I didn't want to get sick. Um, and what ended up happening was not just people who had COVID, but people who had anything started utilizing telemedicine as a means of um, having their physician visits. And it hasn't really gone away, even though things have opened back up a lot more than they have. And I think that telemedicine as a means for um, delivering patient care is something that's probably here to stay. It was already around Mm -hmm. and people were utilizing it, um, but COVID just kicked everything into overdrive when it came to using it. And, you know, insurance companies um, have started, you know, paying for telemedicine visits just as though they were normal visits. And right, at they're, some embr- point, they're embracing it now. Yeah, and at some point that's going to, you know, back off and fall off. Um, but it will never go back to something that only select people did. It's something that everybody's going to probably utilize moving forward. I think everybody, I think every physician that I know and every uh, uh, nurse or nurse practitioner that I know had a quick um, lesson in Zoom. Everybody learned how to use Zoom and uh um, Doximity, yes, yes, all of it. But one one thing interesting that I had read about uh, telemedicine, which makes I, I believe it makes doctors look uh, much better than people realize. Because let's say a, not everybody had COVID. People people during this COVID pandemic, the the other things that we have dealt with since really the beginning of medicine, uh, the sore throat, the 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 stomach issues or just in, you, you name it, you know, generalized medicine uh, did not go away. Um, you know, a focus got shifted. Everybody was scared of the pandemic, but somebody could still get strep throat and had nothing to do with COVID. Um, what's interesting to me is how it was embraced because a lot of people think that you have to be sitting in front of a physician for that physician to know what's wrong with you. Um but a lot of your your job, besides you know maybe looking at some uh, some basic uh, information such as blood pressure or O2 stats, things like that, you listen to your patient, and your brain's working. Right, and you know, I, in medical school, I had a uh, professor, I forget which one, um, but he said in you know training us to do the exam mm-hmm. and interview portion of the visits. That if you just listen to the patient, they will tell you what is wrong with them. Right. And, you know, if someone comes in and says their back hurts, well, you already know what's wrong. Right. You have to sort out the cause. Right. And, you know, sore throats are no different that the throat's only hurting for, uh, you know, a short list of reasons. Right. 
And it's really just our job to figure that out. And a lot of times it is possible to figure that out with um, somewhat cursory exams. And even Mm -hmm. if they're not physically in front of you where you can look and diagnose it to, you know, a spot on diagnosis. Right. You know, the treatments are pretty much in this small box of things. And so you can really diagnose and treat things um, from afar simply by listening to the patient. Well, you know, and, and I was last weekend, I was talking with my uncle and uh, he's a radiologist in Charlotte. And, you know, he's, he's worked from home forever because he looks at pictures, you know, and some of them are complicated. And sometimes he may have to ask a few extra questions, call someone uh, about maybe the way they took the shot or, or, or whatever before he makes his official diagnosis. But, you know, that's been around a long time. People, this isn't just something, you know, a lot of doctors started doing this and, and haven't done it in the past, but telemedicine has been around for a while uh, for your basic primary needs. Um, you know, like you said, there's small boxes of antibiotics. There's a small range. There's small, there's, there's, there's things for, say, an upset stomach that you may want to try. And the right questions will give you the right avenue. And then, you know, I had a physician tell me, and, and you can certainly disagree with me on this. He said, but if it gets to a point where it seems to be a little confusing, that was your opportunity then to bring them in. Because, you know, at that point you said, well, maybe I need to do a hands-on because I can't quite grasp what they're saying. Because some folks, you know, will will take a doc- Some people use physicians um, for a... <laughs> Uh, they use a medical physician for psychiatric purposes. We'll let you know everything that's wrong with them, you know, and can't focus on one specific thing. So sometimes you have to go eyeball to eyeball to really figure it out. But but for the most part, I love the telemedicine. Definitely. Uh, um, and it's funny you say that. I actually think that telemedicine may, from the physician side, actually make what you're speaking to of um, people in person mm-hmm. actually end up speaking more and lay more about what's going on in their daily life and other issues that are not specific to their Mm -hmm. complaint in front of you. On telemedicine, people actually are pretty spot on, right right on what it is that they are, what's ailing them, right? And so if I see you in the office, you may tell me about your sore throat, but you're also telling me about your kids and other things. And it's not that I don't want to hear that, but it a lot of things that come up in an in-person visit don't right. actually come up on the telemedicine. And so to an extent, telemedicine for me has been a little bit more efficient because it's a, a very focused exam or a very focused conversation about yes. your acute issue. Um, and some of the other background things um, don't really get brought up as much. Right. Well, you know, and I've noticed that too. Uh, I've been uh, primarily for now, I travel a lot, but I do a lot of work from the phone. Mm-hmm. And when I have to ask a specific question, let's say I'm talking to um, a client about a pharmacy issue, or I'm talking to a client, uh, an executive director over a community in regards to a policy and procedure. Um, we tend not to chat as much about how's everything going, how's the family. Uh, we get right to the point, and I find that my brain can focus a lot easier uh, on that point and really help them more than if I got sidetracked with, with those side questions that come in, because I tend to lose my place where I initially, you know, was thinking about the policy of the procedure 
or what they're asking or about the medication. So right. I like it. I mean, it, for, for me, because I'm a talker, and you know this, and this is obviously why I do a show, because it gives me the opportunity to talk. But, uh, no, we can get right to the point, and I think that we've really narrowed it down and, and got good at what we do uh, with telemedicine and, and even with policy and procedures, even the state regulations. Um, even some of their surveys have been through the phone. Uh, you know, to making sure you have this and this and, and, you know, they even send out emails now, blast emails instead of coming into your building where they used to hand you or coming into your facility or community or hospital and hand you new procedures and sign for them. Now they just send them out and you have a separate book you put them in. Right. So I think that's pretty interesting, but I did want to ask you on the hospice side of things. Sure. Um, in the last couple of years, what's changed? Really, the biggest things, um, well, multiple levels. Um, of course, you always have to have a great staff. Yes. And, and you um, guys do. And we do. Um, but the keeping a great staff has become difficult, you know, especially in COVID times when the amount of travel nursing that's been going on to yes. help with nursing shortages right. elsewhere in the country, um, as well as recruitment to oh, help yeah. with the influx of patients locally, um, sometimes makes it hard to keep up with all the other competitors uh, for this finite group of right. good nurses. Good Not nurses. to say that aren't all nurses aren't good, but but all, all nurses aren't good. Aren't as, well? They're not all <laughs> as experienced, and right, they right. don't necessarily all understand what goes into and how to approach the hospice patient. Right. Um, it's often different and hard for um, some people. Um, it took me an adjustment time, so it's not just the nurses. No, no. To switch your focus from doing everything you can to help somebody and to fix the problem mm -hmm. versus accepting that the problem is what it is and then making that person as comfortable as they can be made for the remainder of right. their life. Right. Um, as far as... What else has changed? Uh, clearly, past couple of years is just the um, extra precautions that you have to take um, when it comes to going into homes mm -hmm. and making sure that everybody has the right amount of equipment. Mm -hmm. Not to say that we didn't have normal gowns and gloves, mm -hmm. um, but having to diligently wear your mask mm -hmm. and diligently make sure that the people that you're around right now aren't sick mm -hmm. um, because in the hospice world, there's a lot of home visits mm -hmm. and you're going from house to house. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just the one-on-one -on -one patient interaction where there's a risk of, you know, contracting COVID like mm -hmm. in your office, mm -hmm. the patient comes in, it's typically just you and the patient may be one caregiver. Mm -hmm. In a home, you've got the patient and their family. All right. And that sometimes can be a caregiver. That sometimes could be uh, a son and a daughter-in-law and mm -hmm. three kids. And and there's a lot more potential exposure. And so you just have to be careful with it. Right. Um, as far as policies and procedures when it comes to caring for hospice patients— that hasn't really changed uh, too right. much. It's right. pretty much, um, pretty much the same. Well, you know, I, I, it, it leads me to think that, you know, a lot of people, like when I was little, I'll give you an example. This is something crazy, but when I was in school, 
I didn't realize the school teacher had a life. I really did think, I, I don't know what I thought. I guess it was silly, but, you know, I was six, seven, eight years old. So I thought, you know, when we left the classroom, I guess they backed up to the to the chalkboard and plugged their stuff in. And, you know, just happened to be there the next day when we got there. I, I didn't realize, you know, they had families and they had lives. And to be honest with you, a lot of people, because uh, a lot of people that listen to our show aren't in the healthcare business, you know. And they also don't realize that the caregivers, being, you know, the doctors, the nurses, the CNAs, really anybody in healthcare, um, people in maintenance, people in dietary, I mean, the whole gamut. Um, these folks have lives and families and, you know, they want to stay safe. So it leads me to believe that it had to bring some fear and not only yourself, but to your nurses and your CNAs that go to these homes. Um, because I know they have families they go home to as well. Definitely. Um, what do you, what did, what did you guys do specifically or, or if you know, to help them with that fear? Um, go more, do you do more training over like, uh, you know, the proper gowning and, in in the mask and things like that, or we or, certainly did, um, do training with regards to the, uh, appropriate use of the PPE, right. um, and then making sure that they had the best PPE yes. quality that we could find. You right. Know, sometimes things and that was hard scarce. to find for a Definitely while. Definitely was hard to find. Um, um, luckily we were able to keep, you know, a good supply of all the things needed. It became a bit tedious when it came to, um, disposal no, <laughs> after yes. the fact. Yes. Um, but, um, really just reviewing things that, you know, everybody already knows normal precautions. Mm -hmm. Um, they were already wearing gowns and gloves primarily when they mm -hmm. went at home. Absolutely. And so really it was just adding on the mask and then the proper, implementation of the mask and everybody had to do um the fit test to make sure yes. that you know if they had a beard or that for whatever reason if the mask didn't fit them or like that, me with a big head <laughs> or like myself with a large <laughs> a large cranium um that the, the, the mask fit properly um and that's not an unpleasant test you, know, you have to smell something which is yeah, a little spray. not fun but no. um really that was a fit test and i don't know that we'd done a fit test um for everybody. Right. right. Um, because it wasn't just the nurses. It was right, sure. all employees sure. because everyone had to right. uh, make sure they were. Um, I had to endure that. I, uh, and I, I think it took four times to get right. So I had that smell four times. Um, yeah, it's not that a good, it's not that good of a smell. But I think that everybody's did a good job. But that, that brings to the good employees that we're talking about right now. And, and this is, this has been a conversation I've had pretty much every time whether it be on our show or whether it just be, you know, speaking in general to, because uh, you and I have a lot of the same friends, uh, EDs, different physicians, um, the staffing issues. Right. Um, a lot of skilled facilities, assisted livings, hospitals. Um, they're going through a time right now. Um, they are. Some folks, uh, I, I won't name the facility as I never do, but but I was I was reading their contract the other day, and you know after a certain amount of time, they're offering a car to give oh. you a car, an That's incentive, nice. right? Well, of course, it's it's awesome. I mean, you know, because that and obviously you have many factors you have to meet. You know, you can't call out, you can't do certain things, be late. I mean, so it's not easy, but it can be done, right? Um. Hospitals are offering huge bonuses. 
Right. Um, that some nurses are just so tired because this strained the healthcare world. Um, I know it had to strain you. I mean, uh, you need sleep like uh, everybody else needs sleep. Uh, and nurses and, 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 and uh, doctors, CNAs, the whole world that works in medical needs that. Do you have an idea in your head or have you thought, how do we, how do we move forward and get people interested back into it? Because right now there's, there's a shortage in college of doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, matter of fact, one, uh, I was talking to a professor, uh, at Duke and during the first round of COVID, um, medical students were that, that were in their, uh, final year and got to leave early and, and go into hospitals and to residency mm-hmm. programs to help staff, uh, that was a blessing for them. And, uh, honestly on the job learning, I think they probably learned more than, you know, they would have in the classroom, but you see all these other industries, anywhere you drive in South Carolina and I, and I traveled everywhere now hiring, now hiring, you mm-hmm. know, and it's big money, bigger money. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the healthcare workers weren't making that kind of money that some say maybe a uh, fast food or uh, some retail outlets are offering. What do you think we need to do to get the heart back to people that want to be in healthcare to, to show them that it's still, that it's still a needed profession that, you know, it's, it's valuable. Um, even if we can't necessarily pay that rate because, Sometimes we're on a slim margin and people don't realize that everybody thinks that everybody in healthcare has a pocket full of money, but that's not the case in hospice. And that's not the case in certain, um, Medicaid facilities. So, you know, what advice would you give to, to an aspiring, uh, healthcare worker coming up? Um, that is definitely fulfilling. Um, you get to help people on a a regular basis. Um, I think that, and I hope it'll be seen if it, works but for people like myself um well not myself everyone that's our age mm-hmm. this pandemic isn't something that we've ever experienced yeah. and hopefully you won't ever experience again no. um but i'm hopeful that the same way that we saw droves of people who had not been previously thinking about or considering the military yes. after 9-11, Good point. Um, there was a huge influx of people signing up, leaving college, coming out of high school, mm-hmm. and they, you know, came to the field of, well, came to the military. Well, we became a country that. united. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, there's going to be somebody who is in high school who had a loved one who either didn't survive COVID, who mm-hmm. wants to make sure that doesn't happen to their kids mm-hmm. or their friends and family in the future. And then there's going to be those that had family members that were helped by the healthcare system. And, you know, you may have spent, you know, three weeks on a ventilator, mm-hmm. but, you know, in theory, if you're a, a middle school, high school age kid and you see the doctors come in and take care of your mother, father, grandmother, whoever for months or weeks that trickle down is four or five years later, you're like, you know what? I want to do that same thing for somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so I'm hoping that there will be some influx of people just from the kind of goodwill that was garnered by everybody recognizing that um, the healthcare workers were showing up and still coming to um, the aid of those that were sick. Um, But we're also going to have to realize that, you know, there's more and more um, mid-level providers that are getting more autonomy so that they can practice 
um, by themselves. Mm -hmm. And with the baby boomer population getting older and retiring and needing. And that's a staggering and, rate right now. Yeah, it is. And so trying to keep up with that, um, to fill that slot um, with just doctors um, is probably not possible. Um, and so we're going to have to rely on some mid-levels. That being said also, um, you know, the, they have to increase the funding for mm -hmm. um, medical training. Yes. Um, there has to be more medical school slots. There has to be more residency slots. Mm -hmm. And there's some talks about it, and people clearly realize that, you know, right. there has to be an increase because the doctor shortage um, is only getting worse. Um, I think the nursing shortage really opened everybody's eyes this go around. Yes. Um, because whereas you need one doctor for, uh, say, 15 people, um, if the nurses don't have that same expanding amount, right? You know, I can come right. in, I can come into a hospital and I can see 10 people and I can see 20 people. Right. It's just a matter of how long will I have to walk around and round on and see people mm -hmm. that day. The nurses have a finite amount of people that they can actually take care of. And so when there's a shortage in staff that has regulatory limits on how many people they can be assigned on a daily basis, it really opens everybody's eyes. Mm -hmm. um, and doctors to this point haven't got to that maximum, right. but we're pretty close. Yes. And so the same thing that we're seeing now with the nurses, I think the shortage will be most realized when doctors get to that, okay, I can't see anymore. Right. You got to add somebody to the mix to right. help with this situation. And so I think that uh, the nursing shortage probably opened a lot of eyes with yes. regard to um, the impending um, yeah. doctor shortage. It because you know, it's going to happen. It's right. Mathematically, it's there. It's, the writing's on the wall. But hopefully, you know, the universities and uh, state and federal funding um, will will step up and right. say, we, we really need to get ahead of this now. Uh, because, you know, none of us know. You know, I could sit there and ask you this question, but it's, it's an unanswerable question. Um, how long do you think we'll go through this? Well, we don't know. Uh, I, I have, I have thought about it. I have read everything I could and, you know, some people say, you know, within two years, you know, we're going to be back to a normal. I think when we get back to normal, when we call it that, I think it's going to be a new normal. It's, it's, Definitely. it's never going to be the same. It's not going to be before, not even the way we practice. But one thing that I would like to tell, uh, you know, aspiring uh, kids or young adults that are looking at the medical field, but now, you know, a little nervous about it is during this pandemic with a shortage of nurses that we saw, there were nurses all across the country that were retired two and three years, very comfortable, did not need the money, uh, living a good life that literally stood up and physicians as well stood up and came right back into the middle of the fire to help the patients. Because one thing that these other careers will not give you, and you, you touched on this a moment ago, I look back at my career and the residents and patients that I've been able to help or be with, you know, I've learned so much from them. And, uh, I've learned a lot about, um, I guess, humility dignity, um, made some great friends 
through those residents. And really, they taught me, you know, I guess that you can age gracefully, even when you're in pain, even when things, even when your memory is not fully there, um, they're still inside there somewhere. And to walk away knowing that I was that person that was there for them that day, that I personally cared for them just as I would my own family, my own mother, my own father, whoever it may be. Um, that's rewarding. Um, because you just have to almost think that, well, if you weren't there, right. You know, do you want your family member to be alone and suffering through whatever ailment it may be that they're going through, whether it be in the hospital or a facility or on hospice at home? Um, I feel like that's a huge thing that we can offer as humans. Um, you know, it obviously does take money to live. We both know that. I mean, uh, right. I have gas is killing me right now. It's, it's amazing. But, you know, I'm sure if I went to another sector of life, I could have made a lot more money or, or whatever, but I don't know that I'd have had the personal fulfillment. Right. Um, because when, when you have a patient of, of, of really any age, you know, that grabs your hand and really genuinely pats you on the hand and says, thank you. And it means it from the heart. Um, I don't know that money could ever replace that feeling. It is, uh, you know, I, I walked out to my car and had tears before because I knew that they, they truly appreciated some, and, and maybe I didn't think it was a big thing. Right. I thought I was doing my job, but for them, it was huge. It was something they realized I cared. And, um, one thing family members, I think we need to talk about for just a moment. Sure. A lot of family members have been isolated from seeing their loved ones in facilities and hospitals. Um, because of the pandemic and, and, you know, we've never had to really experience that before. Um, but I think a lot of them don't understand, you know, certainly it, it does have an effect on the family, not being able to see their loved one. And then it does have an effect on the, on the patient, not being able to see their family, but they do need to know that at least everyone that I know professionally. And, and, and I think you would agree you're the same way. I definitely know you're the same way. When you go in with that patient, you are talking to them, you're listening to them, holding their hand if they need a handheld, but you are doing everything for them as you would if it was your own family. Right. And family members, I hope they get comfort knowing that, that we're not just saying that their, their mom and dad is a number. We know that they have children. Then we know that we they have grandchildren and sisters and brothers, and our goal is to get them better if we can. Right. Um, even in hospice, you know, you guys, um, hospice is, is a hard. It's, it's a very. It takes a special person to do hospice work. But I have seen you guys and other hospice um, really go in and do a good job, and people graduate from hospice, like literally come off the service because they're doing better at that time. And you guys applaud that, you know, that's a good thing. You know, Definitely. you're happy for that. We all know that, you know, the day we're born, the first breath we take is one breath closer to death. Um, 
we're not made to survive forever, which I don't know if I want to. I don't know if I want to be a hundred and uh, not knowing how to use the technology and, and I'm sure I'll be out of money at that point, you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, you also want to respect the life that they led. Right. We have a hard time in healthcare seeing someone that's aged They're they're maybe, you know, in their, their eighties or nineties. And it's hard for a lot of people to look and realize that they were you, mm-hmm. you know, they had a full life. They contributed, uh, to our world that we currently live in now. Um, I think if, if every healthcare worker would do that, and especially the aspiring ones coming out of school and, and in college now would realize that you're going to learn from the best because that was the best generation. That generation is not like our generation. Our generation can't talk to each other face to face. Hardly that generation worked and they went through, uh, wars and the baby boomers, uh, Vietnam and, um, Panama. Mm-hmm. All of those things. I mean, these are some tough people, so we got to give them credit there. So sometimes in healthcare, the best medicine is listening. It's yep. listening to them, and sometimes that just makes them feel better because they may they they're in a dark place because of they know what's going on with them, but we listen to them and we understand. And I know you've been in it a long time. So without, you know, saying names, I know you probably could sit back and tell a million stories that impacted your life and changed certain things in the way you do things. Definitely. And good and bad. Good and um, bad. You know, oh, absolutely. You definitely, you know, you learn from things that you've seen that, you know, you couldn't control the outcomes on. Um, but you see something unique and you kind of store it in your memory so mm-hmm. that if and when you see it again, yeah, um, you can maybe get to that person and help them a little sooner, mm-hmm. um, help them in a more focused, better capacity, mm-hmm. um, and just, you know, learn from your wins and your failures, you know, I hate to say failures, um, but sometimes things are just not fixable, no. right? And that can go from people to cars, right? Yes, you know, absolutely. Sometimes people just have conditions that they're terminal, um, and then you fix it, you can't fix it, um, then you've got the product. You also have to make sure that people know that the best way to know that if and when the time comes that everything has been done is to um, make sure that they take care of themselves Mm -hmm. and get their primary care stuff done Mm -hmm. when they're supposed to, right? right? And I think if everybody knows that they did everything they could leading up to the end Mm -hmm. that when that time comes, it's a lot easier to deal with what's to come. Right. Um, a lot of people don't go get their regular checkups, physicals and their family members know they haven't done what they're supposed to do. Right. And so I think that one component of it is people are trying to hurry up and do 10, 15 years of didn't do right. when people get sick. Right. And <laughs> they they can't let go right then. Um, and this isn't even just with hospice. This is just with everything. everything. Um, that, you know, this is actually prior to hospice. There's a lot of people that, a lot of families and people that focus on getting everything done. You know, there's a stat, and it's probably 5, 10 years old, but 
80% of healthcare dollars um, that individuals spend, 80% of the money that you'll spend are spent in the last six months of life. Well, if you think about it, that doesn't make sense. No. Right? It should be, in theory, if you live to be 80, you would expect for it to be spread out. Over 80 years. Pretty evenly. Over 80, even not 80, from 40 to 80, right? right? Let's say that the first 40 years of life, people are relatively healthy. Mm. Things are working the way you're supposed to. They don't have a lot of wear and tear on them. But let's just say the first 40 were free. You would think that over the next 40, things would be split up relatively evenly, not the vast majority in the last six months. Um, And I think that if people did spend that money over yeah, the course, the, of, that the course of the life of the forty, those forty years from forty to eighty. Then, when eighty got here, um, the idea of this is it is they you know you did everything you could, you know. I think you can accept it better, and I think even the quality of life during that last forty, if we're going off an of eighty scale, uh, the quality of life would be better. Like, and you're absolutely right, out because I literally was going to say this. It's amazing to me that people, without a doubt, when their oil light comes on on their car, they will rush to have their oil changed. Mm-hmm. They will do everything they can to keep that car running perfectly as long as it can. Mm-hmm. But they will avoid the doctor like the plague. Mm-hmm. They won't go in for their regular checkups for their uh, for. Uh, I was I was talking with my wife, so I can just say this for their mammograms and their Pap smears and their colonoscopies and. And those things that actually can catch things mm-hmm. uh, that we can treat versus it being the end. And now all of a sudden you wish you would have done it. Um, one piece of advice I need to give to our listeners, since you're here and you're a physician, uh, is simply that listen to your doctor. When he tells you you need to check up every six months or you need to check up every year, do that. Um, he or she is not telling you that simply just to keep you coming in paying them. I promise you. We're not. Um, they're doing that because they know with you can be fine today and tomorrow something could slightly start to develop. And they want to stay on top of it and keep a good full medical record of you so they can go back and look and see. And really, your quality of life toward the end of life will be a lot better. Right. Um, I know you're on a time schedule, and we have went over a little bit. It's all right. Uh, but uh, once again, I do appreciate you being here for this show. Thank you. Uh, I ask a question to everybody at the very end. Sure. So here's my question for you. If at this moment in your career, in your life, you had to write a book, what would the title of that book be? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, still going, I guess. I don't know. That's a good one. No, still going. I get it. Because um, you do. Um, just want you to know you're highly respected. Um, I think you do a great job for our community. Uh, you work hard. You're always working. Uh, this you. this man always works. He uh, every time I call him or catch him, the only time we'll chit chat about when he does get to watch Netflix. I don't know if you even get to do that anymore. I watch. It. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we like to talk about that because we don't always talk medical, so that's a good thing. But um, truly, if you are looking, um, you know, it, you're you're in need of. Uh, a loved one with maybe a hospice consult you need or yeah, that's Patriot, um, Patriot hospice. And then for primary care, um, HRW health, you know, hrwhealth.com, um, is my website and, um, we do primary care addiction and pain management there. So 
Yeah, so definitely go to the website. Um, Dr. White will reply to you. Um, if you have any questions for me or you're, or you're not sure how to uh, reach out to them or, or ask them, feel free. Uh, you can always e- email me as well uh, at andy uh, at selectcarerx.com, uh, and I'll be happy to answer any question that you have or pass them on to Dr. White. So once again, Dr. White, I appreciate you coming. Thank you. Um, I appreciate everything that you do for our community and our patients. And I look forward to having you again on the show. All right. I appreciate it. I'll be back. All right. Thank you for listening to We Think, We Talk. All information discussed on this show is for entertainment purposes only. Please contact your medical or healthcare professional for more medical advice.